Hey friend, it's Forrest, your favorite librarian. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Welcome to episode 12, Measurement of Authenticity, Black Literature by White Authors. <laughs> you know, in this week's episode, there are some titles that I think will assist you. The first is Power Hungry, Women of the Black Panther Party, and Freedom Summer and Their Fight to Freed a Movement by Suzanne Cope. The next is God and Race, a Guide to Moving Beyond Black Fist and White Knuckles is by John Siebling and Wayne Francis. And last but not least, which is a companion volume to the public television series, The Question of Equality, Lesbian and Gay Politics in America Since Stonewall. And it's edited by Michael Dietrich. And you know, this week we're going to discuss, you know, Black literature by white authors or non-people of color in four ways. Who contributes to the black experience? Gatekeeping, preserving over protecting, and protecting and preserving, allyship and holding space, and just who provides and gives credibility. Let's jump into this week's discussion. You know, first, who contributes to the black experience? You know, when we define black contributions and contributors of the black experience, that extends beyond our understanding of the globe, the disport community, as well as all those identities that are at various intersections, either Afro-Latina, either whether you are in Brazil, whether you're in Cancun or Australia or in the New England area or in the low country area of Georgia or whether you're in the Midwest or hell in Turkey. Hell, if you're on an expedition or cruise towards the North Pole, your contribution to the black experience is essential and vital. But yet, how do we value those contributions who gets to contribute, whether a part of the black, dysphoric, or people of color community? And how do we circulate these narratives to where it provides authenticity of an appropriate representation of people of color? And when we discuss the black experience, you know, let's break that down. The black experience is about visibility, circulating education of a wealth of history as well, and also culture. But how are these things, how are these three elements circulated throughout our lives? And I'd like to provide you this perspective through academia, through book promotions, through the influence of social media or your communal areas, you're able to find representation, that visibility through your professional environment with teachers in public education settings or in your personal environment with your colleagues or to whom you decide to be your medical providers. You know, for example, growing up, all my medical providers, whether it was my optometrist, my eye doctor, my general practitioner, they were all people of color. My parents handpicked our physicians and our pediatricians and our eye doctors and our ENT specialists to be people of color because they wanted us to have that representation and to build that bond with a doctor, with a medical professional, with someone that wasn't primarily black, but that was also brown. You know, my uh, pediatrician from what, seven, from age seven until 19 was a South Asian woman. My optometrist um, was 
a, a white man up until middle school to him was a, a black woman. My general um, physician um, since 19 until now has been a, a black woman. I've made those conscious choices myself as well, not only to have that representation, but to also circulate wealth back into these communities. You know, there are institutions that are built upon a lack of understanding of self, of identity, and utilizing your identity to empower yourself and others. And so I believe that when you utilize your dollar to vote, to illustrate your your intent, your interest, and also where you place value in culture, you are voting. And, you know, my parents taught me some of the, some of the most essential ways to vote, not only with my political interests in the, in that, in that area, either voting, but also using my money to vote. And so when I invest my money back into people of color communities and spaces, I feel I feel very intentional when I do this. And so I'm able to contribute not only to my experience as a black individual and someone that is a part of the black experience, but those that contribute to their own cultural narrative. You know, as I mentioned, my uh, pediatrician since age seven to 19 was a South Asian woman. So I was able to not in a way have access to a culture I wouldn't generally, but I was able to have an intimate look. And also from a child perspective, up until I matured, I was able to, with my pediatrician, ask questions that I would not have been able to, to someone that was a stranger in my life or someone that I did not know because we had a rapport. And so because of that connection and that access, I was able to gain a greater understanding of other cultures around me, other women at other intersections that were similar to myself. You know, as a black queer woman, I saw many, many issues, excuse me, that my South Asian older physician had faced. And I was like, wow, okay, I'm not alone with these feelings. And this is how she navigated. This is how a community um, maneuvered that situation. This is, these are my options for myself. And that is what empowered me. And so through academia, through book promotions, through influence, either social or communal, you know, you're able to see how we as a community or individually plays value on contributions. So for example, education, Academia circulates what we perceive as credible information, as knowledge, not as wisdom, but as we consider fact, something that has been backed up with substantial research of evidence, hard evidence, abstract evidence, evidence that we can all utilize at any time because it's not timely, it doesn't it's not paired with a specific um, dated mindset. This is information that can be applied based upon to whom is using it, how they're using it for the good or whatever intentions. And unfortunately, a lot of literature that comes out of the black, unfortunately, a lot of literature that is deemed black literature, a percentage is written by non-people of color because they are well-versed scholars or they are advocates or they have been um, activists in the fight or the journey for liberating people of color, primarily blacks. And with that, we have the question, are white authors, are non-people of color authors contributing to the black experience? And for myself, I'd like to say they provide a perspective but they do not contribute simply because the black experience 
in my humble and respectful opinion, can only be articulated if you are wrapped, adorned, or under the cloak of melanin. And that that nugget of goodness is not only an aesthetic, it's not only physical, it's a consciousness. You are born into this consciousness. It is not something you pass down as in a mentality, but it is an essence you can't describe into words. And even to do so is to snub the entire measurement. If there is one of what melanin is, could be, or, or, or could ever be imagined to be. And so when we look at the leaders of the old school is what I like to say, our pillars of our community, their advocacy as you know, for example, when we look at Fred Hampton, I love his quote that he says, as long as there is a black person alive, the Black Panther Party will not die. And I believe that <clears throat> because it's not an doctrine. It's not a culture or a lifestyle. It's a way of life to liberate all through looking at yourself and through walking with the commitment that you want more for yourself and in the greater good and in the greater scale for those that look and think and that will eventually represent the culture that you are also a part of. And so when we look at allies and intersectionality, you know, in in God and Race, the title by John Siepling and Wade Francis, this book... <clears throat> This book is something that I really want people to interpret and really utilize, not because it's a great title for religion and cultural topics or anything, any educator that was looking to find a reference for outreach, but that <clears throat> pastors Siebling, Pastor John Siebling and also Wade Francis, to whom is black, they lead a thriving racial diverse church in Memphis and in New York City. And amidst the Black Lives protests and during the pandemic, still during the pandemic, we're still in the pandemic, believe it or not, <laughs> they created practical guides to help people enter into a new conversation about race. And, you know, Siebling, to whom is white, and Francis, to whom is a black man, they examined the white-black tension from both perspectives, and they answer uncommon questions and they ask uncommon questions you know sometimes it's important to understand that just because you can provide an answer it's also safe to know that you can it's also assuring to know you can ask questions too and not always have the answers but are willing to look for them too and so that's what these two great scholars and pastors provide and do and in each section of the title they provide practical step-by-step -step help to help you jump in and to provide space for others and to be a solution. So I definitely encourage you to, to look at this. It shows how Christians can lead the effort in healing racism, but also how Christianity is a tool to understand how many infrastructures and the racial tension, implicit bias, and what has provided that division can be aided through recon that reconciliation of a bridge that can be provided and built through this resource so definitely check it out um <clears throat> and you know when I say hold space and 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 I definitely want to get into that later on in our third topic allyship and holding space but when I say holding space that is an essential portion of black literature when you open a piece of black literature it's a space that's held for you to be who you are to examine 
an access of culture and access to a narrative that may not have been as seen, may not have been as articulated previously because of certain implicit bias for black narratives to simply be considered whole, human, or a part of American history or history in general. You know, the, the journey of personhood historically for people of color is longer compared to any other non-person of color. And so when we look at white allyship, that leads me into my next question, gatekeeping and preserving and protecting or protecting over preserving. You know, when we look at pillars of our community, they are naturally positioned. People maintain a natural position in our lives and in our community. And through their actions, their intentions, through how they are received and welcomed and embraced, we see how they are able to move through not only social schemes or social standards of, of what we deem as a hierarchy, but socially, social economically. We're able to see how they're able to utilize certain levels of our community or of culture as leverage. So, for example, when we view Black Lives Matter movement and protests, we automatically, and when I say we, the general perception is to immediately define their leadership. To explore how this collection of women and queer folk organize and how they have not possibly utilized resources appropriately. And that distracts us from the, the objectives of the movement and the efforts that have been made and the progress that is being completed. But yet when we look at these leaders, we also define the progress we expect in leaders of today. And this is something completely different, I believe, and what we charged or presented or expected in the leadership of yesterday. For example, the Rainbow Coalition is an idea that began from Fred Hampton, but it was it was assumed and also spearheaded and led by many other catalysts of change. For example, the great Jesse Jackson, to whom utilized the Rainbow Coalition to to articulate the importance of allyship across the board, whether it be a white ally, a Hispanic ally, a, Lat- a Latina, an indigenous or Native American, an aboriginous, the list goes on and on. But I believe without understanding origin, we snub the importance of history. Without preserving history, we lose the sense of to whom originated, who is the innovator. And I think that's what happened with the Rainbow Coalition. You know, I believe the intentions were great for utilizing that term, that objective, but without citing the originator of that culture, of that movement, we lose the essence of the people that organized initially for the liberation equality and for the space, for safe spaces to be cultivated for these people. And so when we do that, we snub and overlook black owned spaces, discussions and areas. And, you know, circulation is a reflection of currency. What you circulate, you value. What you circulate, you place a value on or believe is valuable. And so what you also circulate, you celebrate. 
If I circulate black and queer literature, I'm celebrating black and queer authors. If the authors of black and queer literature that I'm circulating are not black and queer authors, then I'm not providing wholeheartedly authentic stories and perspectives. I'm providing perspectives, but not contributions of these intersections of these communities that I think I am celebrating. And so it's important to have proper representation. And when we say proper representation, it's not just black literature or queer literature. It's that I am circulating black and queer literature by black and queer authors. Because when we explore intersectionality, it's not only representing the communities, but having and holding safe and brave spaces for these narratives to live, to flourish, to circulate, to be celebrated. So when we look at titles like Hunger, like Power Hungry by Suzanne Coop, these are white scholars that have a wealth of research, of historical knowledge, of insight, of a proper historical timeline of, of black history. And this is beautiful. And there are also black scholars. There are also people of color scholars that can provide the same wealth of information. Why aren't we circulating them as well? I feel like there are space there is a space for them. Everybody can eat. I'm so damn tired sometimes. As well, when I look at black children's literature, you see a lot of black children's literature with white authors, but with black illustrators. And that pains me. Sometimes it disheartens me because you see illustrations of black culture from white perspectives. So when a child picks that title up, yeah, they see a black illustration of black life, but it's from a black, it's from a white perspective. So it's not entirely a full perspective because there are certain filters, certain lenses that are applied that aren't a part of the natural, the initial contribution, the narratives of the black experience. Someone cloaked in melanin would not initially have that perspective or born with that walking every day with certain racial tension or implicit bias or misunderstandings or injustices or either ignorances based upon xenophobic practices or microaggressions or macroaggressions, either actions or verbal sayings or phrases. So when we protect what we value, we also are are celebrating its natural position with where it is with culture, with how it's placed within our community and where and where we place these pillars of our community and how we circulate them out of our community and within. And you know, when we when you for example, when you look at me as your favorite librarian, my platform I prov- I try to provide a safe and brave space, a neutral learning environment so you as a reader can arrive to whatever piece of literature or resource that best resonates or reflects your journey, your strengths, your interests, or the weaknesses you're trying to really define and and find a conclusion to. And by doing that, I want to provide a wealth so that way I hit almost every subject at least once. And when I'm able to, 
either provide additional references or resources on a specific subject, either, for example, Afrofuturism or Afro-pessimism, or whether we're looking at um, eugenics, or say we're looking at um, um, Black Judaism or Black feminist theory. I'm trying to provide resources at every avenue of these subjects so every interest is seen or there is a resource for you to at least be introduced to what you are interested in or to explore what you are interested in and with that like for example with power hungry the reason why i love this title is because suzanne coop her history the research that she provides on these two beautiful unsung heroes of the black panther party but just black women that are overlooked not only because they aren't as accepted in traditional feminist environments or circles but these women as radical as they are help to to reshape an environment and space that traditionally would be seen as black or black masculinely led and i don't want to spoil the title too much but in the early 1969 Cleo Silvers and A. Quinn and a few other Black Panther Party members met at community centers with boxes of donated food to cook for neighborhood children and by the end of the decade the Black Panthers were feeding more children daily in their breakfast programs than the state of California and many other areas of welfare by the state and, and national programs. And so that kind of that kind of change that we see echoing across the country was done by black cisgendered women and black leadership, but that they were able to, in a Sankofa effect, give back to the communities that they were a part of through organizing the most simplistic resources, food. Something many people don't consider a necessity. You know, food, shelter, I believe culture are are a necessity. They help you to understand self. They maintain who you are. But without these elements, you're not able to, to survive. And yet, you know, Silver and the other woman and also their supporters of the and their members of the Black Panther Party were able to utilize food to truly challenge certain intentional national and state programs that were meant to rehabilitate neighborhoods and communities of children, but they weren't. And in a way, you see that these women, the Black Panther Party, were able to challenge so many infrastructures based upon nuances of what they believe were needs and wants of their community that they were able to satisfy so intentionally and effortlessly through being intentional with your resources, your your community organization organizing, as well as investing in the leadership that looks and thinks or thinks like you. And so when we see this title <clears throat> by a white author, we have to ask ourselves the information that she provides. How are we going to apply it? How do we celebrate it? How do we circulate it? How do we circulate this same information from black authors? How do we value this separate contribution as well as articulate it a part of the black experience, a part of black literature? Those are questions that I, I charge and raise to all readers. 
which leads me into our third topic of, you know, our podcast for this week, Measurement of Authenticity, Black Measurement, Black Literature by White Authors. Allyship and holding space. And this is where we get into some trouble. <laughs> and where I am going to be a, a chaotic favorite, a neutral chaotic almost. Let's define allyship first before we go into holding space and what that looks like. Allyship is the unspoken, the undivided and intentional role or position of a person to support someone that doesn't reflect the identity or community that not is of question or a struggle that is paired with an identity but that of a community or an intersection that is either historically snubbed, overlooked, or dehumanized. And through the act of holding space, and when we say holding space, we define it as providing an environment where a narrative can live without the intentions of the white gaze of being capitalized or with the intentions of it being utilized as trauma or as imagery for a lack of empathy. And so when we hold space, we are listeners, we are active listeners, so that way these narratives can live as colorfully as possible, as lively, as passionate as, po- as passionately as possible, because these narratives are beautiful. No matter how they arrive, no matter what they are, as whole in the pieces that they are, or even in the timely manner that they come. And when we look at allyship, we must also articulate the difference between being an ally, a great ally, and performance activism. And performing performance activism reaches many communities not only within the black community the black lives matter community we also see that in the black panther party movement if you have seen the film uh black judas you see the unfortunate demise of a friendship and a brotherhood between fred hampton and his judas but also that performance activism is one of the greatest elements of surveillance capitalism you're able to capitalize off of an environment you are able to surveillance and also satisfy its need based upon their pursuit of of their wants speaking of a specific community and so when you provide and you hold a safe space you are not filling a space you're not filling the space you provide it's open for anyone to utilize at any time And I think when you look at allies, it's important that when you are holding space, you're not feeling it. So when we look at white authors or non-people of color authors that contribute to black literature, are they holding space? (laughs) You know, when when you look at non-people of color authors and white authors, are they holding space for contributions of the black experience? For example, when you look at Asian literature, when you look at indigenous literature, do you see a great wealth of white authors? When you look at Latina and Hispanic literature and resources, 
Do you see a lot of white authors? Are they well are they well circulated as great pillars within their genre, within their scope of literature? And you know, when we look at when we talk about the black community, also one thing that is very commonly spoken about is the black community is known as being very forgiving. And when we say forgiving, this term is commonly used because the black community is commonly paired with being so open and so inviting to others that we don't provide parameters for our culture, our narratives, our communities. And so anyone is able to articulate the black aesthetic, the black experience, the black physique, anyone is able. And, you know, let me go back to that. When I say anyone, I mean, when we look at certain social influencers, we see a lot of black fishing, a lot of white women and white influencers, non-people of color are able to mimic the black aesthetic and are able to capitalize off of this and expand their audience based upon how they're able to look like black women and black men and black queer folk. And no one is, is questioning this as they are now because it has become a, a promoted issue amongst the community, the black community. And now it is becoming an issue amongst others. Many people are starting to flag and say, hey, that's not okay. Because now we see that this is a form of black face. This is not only a form of black fishing. You're a white woman pretending or using certain aesthetic features to make yourself look as a culture that you are not (laughs) or not even familiar with, but that you are literally utilizing an, an aesthetic for your benefit without truly understanding the cultural significance of some of these features and how the women that are born with these features aren't able to live effortlessly as you do without the privilege of utilizing these physical features without being hypersexualized or trivialized or a list of of things that make you feel overlooked and small and so when we examine allyship when we are listing the qualities of what it is to be a great ally an active listener holding space having having an open mind and open heart we also must examine how we circulate these wealth these wonderful contributors are and we must ask ourselves are white are non people of color authors contributors of black literature Are their contributions just as essential as black authors and people of color, authors and narratives? And that's something that I hope that my readers can ask through their investment, through how they vote with their money, as I vote with my money through selecting my primary caregiver. When I vote as well for purchasing resources and books, I try to purchase from black owned or black targeted or in in, or resources or entrepreneurial beginnings or businesses that are in the black community that are in support or for the cultivation of the black excellence or the black experience and I do that because I've tried to be as intentional not in a sense to invite others 
into my space, but to invite authentic contributions, authentic perspectives, authentic allies, authentic support. And that leads me into my last portion of our um, (laughs) podcast for this week, because we hit on some heavy topics, but we haven't gone too deep because I want to introduce some of these topics first before we delve into them in part two because there will be a part two to this topic which I'd actually like to speak with a few authors on the podcast so that would be fun but our last topic of today is who gives and provides credibility for black literature Woo! all right who provides credibility I believe who provides credibility for black literature is based on community influence and corporate investment. You know, recently there's been a a great corporate push to invest in black book bloggers and bookstagram users and book talk users because they see that there's a great social influence and that when you provide these book influencers free books or you know, readers advisories, you're able to have an insight into marking trends, measuring trends, seeing how well a title will will reach or how well it can do in the market. But you're also able to see how well a title can be circulated before it hits the market, just based on influence and access. And with that, many people are able to invest and be intentional. And that goes back again into how you are voting politically and with your money. And so when you see influencers like myself, I consider myself a book blogger because I'm a licensed librarian. This is an extension of my professional environment, my professional entrance and interest, but also my my passion. So when you see me circulating resources, it's because I wholeheartedly believe in the resources I'm providing. I've either read or utilized them or I would reference them in my professional environment. So on um, my end, I'm covered in that. But you have to examine the credibility of others. One, if you're looking at a book influencer or a book blogger, what is their likeliness? What is their audience? Why do you like them? What is their background? What kind of literature do they provide? Do they provide a scope of all genres? Is it a well-balanced? Is it a non-biased balance? Is it a full balance? Are they only providing black Christian literature? Are they only exploring black Christian theory? Are they only exploring certain theory that's Christian-based? Are they not exploring non-traditional practices or spirituality? Are they not exploring feminist theory? Are they not exploring feminist theory from cisgendered black men? Are they not exploring um, certain emotional traumas of black men? Are they not also circulating black male authors? We must examine that, you know, look at that, explore that before you say, okay, I still like this environment. I still like this platform. I still like this book influencer. I still like this social media influencer because that investment, that intention, that time is a vote. That money you invest is a vote. And you are also adding to certain individuals, spaces, influencers, credibility. And as an individual, as a community, we must examine that because we hold power in that. As readers, as leaders, 
as people of a community, as a tribe, as even as followers. To be a great leader, you must also be a great follower. To be amongst the number, you must also know what it is to be one individual number before you contribute to the greater. And so with that, I I ask these questions to readers, and I end that on tonight's note. One, who contributes to the black experience? Two, how do we protect, how do we preserve these contributions, these beautiful narratives? Three, how do we define allyship? What is the proper or best way to hold space for ourselves and others in our communities and outside of them? Lastly, who provides credibility for black literature? And these are questions that are raised in episode 11, Measurement of Authenticity, Black Literature by White Authors. And tonight has been wonderful. I really enjoyed exploring this topic with you. And I hope that you were able to provide me some insight in just what you think about my podcast, each episode, or what you're looking forward to with the next few episodes. You know, season one of Favorite Librarian, the podcast has been amazing. We have a few more episodes until we wrap it up for our spring hiatus, and then we'll be back um, in the summer. Um, But I appreciate you all. And so thank you for being a great listener and also for being a reader. As always, this has been wonderful and fun. Remember, friend, you are not alone. There is something for you. Continue to read. And if you need more black or queer literature, check out my website, favoritelibrarian.com, or my Instagram, favoritelibrarian. Until next time.